Great morning, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Greg Cellini of the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University, class of 1985. My great pleasure to be back with you again today. The purpose of our show, Thank God for Monday, is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, and peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times. Motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as to how you utilize the information we provide today. Take full accountability for the decisions you make and the resulting outcome. One of the goals of our show, thank God for Monday, is to introduce role models. Role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. This is a very special time, the start of summer. Summer is supposed to be a time of relaxation. However, there is nothing which can intrude our relaxation like a jerk at work. And as such, we are honored today to have with us a very, very special guest. Her name is Tessa West. Tessa is an esteemed professor of psychology right here at New York University and a leading expert on interpersonal interaction and communication. She's also the author of the enlightening and timely and great book, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About. Great morning and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Tessa. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. The honor is all ours. Kindly share with the listeners and me from what city and state you're speaking from this morning. I am coming to you from New York, New York. So right here in lower Manhattan. Ah, uh, no place in the world like it. That's for sure. Sadly, we've only got 30 minutes, Tessa. We could spend hours talking with you about your incredible story this wonderful book you've written. So it's okay with you. We're just going to jump right into the deep end of the pool. Sounds great. According to you, and the number seven is really a magical number, but according to, if I understand correctly, you believe there are seven types of jerks at work. Share with us a little about these seven types. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was really hard to narrow it down to seven. So the ones are, <laughs> there were 20 at one point, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to be parsimonious with your jerks at work. I think uh, the categories I went with, I meant to be very general and cross-cutting. So it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You could work at a hair salon, you could work at Target, you could be a CEO. It doesn't matter. You will recognize these seven types. So I went with behavioral signatures that all of us at some point in time will encounter either as ourselves or as somebody else. Um, so if it's useful, I could just give you a couple sentences on, on what each type means. Please, ever and then we'll peel the onion as we <laughs> Sounds great. So the first type I talk about is a, a coworker called the kiss up, kick down. So this is that person who will do anything to get ahead. You know, they, they step on the, the, you know, backs of the people who are beneath them or sometimes even at the same level as them. And they're very conniving about it. They often do it behind the scenes um, with the goal of humiliation or making people question their own expertise. They're tough to deal with because the boss loves them. They tend to be very skilled at work. 
So if you go and complain, you're going to get a lot of resistance. You're going to get a lot of eye rolls coming from, you know, upper level management. They're going to say, you're just jealous of this person, right? It's a very infuriating experience. Um, I dealt with one of those when I worked in retail. I used to sell shoes in Nordstrom's. And so I had a lot of experience with these types of folks. The next is the credit stealer. So we've all been to that place where we tell our good friend, our confidant, sometimes even our own boss, our really cool new idea. And then they take with it and run, sometimes behind our backs, right? You know, Um, they take credit for our hard work, for our good ideas. Um, I see this a lot, actually, with kind of middle-level management, taking credit for the work of the people who work under them, because they're trying to climb up too. And so the best way they can do that is to, you know, really showcase all of their skills. Um, And so these folks, you know, they, they tend to be close to us. We don't get our credit stolen from you know, that random guy we just met once in four cubicles over, it tends to be people we trust. Wow. Um, and it's very, they're very tricksy at work as well. Um, and then the third one is the bulldozer. So if you've ever been stuck in a Zoom meeting with 14 people and one person's screen dominates the entire time, uh, oh, because at no. least I don't know how your online chats or online conferences work, but mine's set up so that when one person talks, it literally just covers up the whole computer screen. Those are your bulldozers. They tend to kind of free associate, think out outside instead of inside their minds. Um, you know, they take up lots of space. They suck the oxygen out of the room. But the worst thing that they do is actually they question decisions that groups make that they don't like, that don't serve their own interests. And the way they do that is they go to people in power and they question the process. So if you work in a company that really values democratic voting, for instance, you know, they'll say no one really knew what they're voting on or no one really had a chance to speak up and it buys them time. And that's kind of how they really break down groups and systems. So, you know, they tend to have power. They've been around for a while. This is not their first rodeo. They know exactly what they're doing. Oh, wow. That's dangerous, yeah. They're very dangerous and disruptive to teams for sure. The next one is the free rider. So this is actually the most common type of jerk at work. Free riding is one of those unique behaviors that we don't just see in humans, we see it in animals as well. It's just uh, uh, earth universal (laughs) to take advantage of teams and groups that are working hard. So free riders tend to be very charismatic and well-liked. We bring them on our teams because they're friends with us. Um, They can really do the veneer of work, but their real skill is in really spreading out their responsibilities evenly among team members so that no one person, you know, really can feel the burn of being, you know, on the target end of a free rider. Uh, They're they're like sleuths at work because they will find the teams that are conscientious, that are, you know, hardworking, that get along. And those are the teams they take advantage of. And the teams that the managers say, you guys are fine. I don't actually need to, you know, go in and make sure everything's okay because they trust them. Um, So those people can be very difficult to work with as well. And then we have three or, yeah, three categories of managers. So the first is the micromanager um, who most people know. This person, their their kind of trademark is that everything is equally urgent and, you know, and everything is equally important. So if you work for a micromanager, it's like you have one hour to do everything all the time. There's there's not like a kind of, you know, ebb and flow of the workplace. It's always in a hurry, always super urgent. And they're really bad at seeing kind of the forest through the trees. So you never really see how all of your work comes together to form some kind of larger goal. Um, so you, the irony is you work the hardest, but you get the least done when you have one of these folks. Oof. Yeah, it's rough. And then we have the neglectful boss who ironically is also a bit of a micromanager. So this person 
disappears, you know, for time on end, sometimes it's because they're being micromanaged. Sometimes it's because they don't have expertise or they're just bad at their own time management. They disappear. They freak out. They panic when they don't know what's going on. So they show up at the 11th hour and then they micromanage to, to sort of reduce their own anxiety to feel like they're in control again. So you, you will go weeks, sometimes months without seeing your boss. It's hours before the deadline. And here they are to show up and to tell you to redo everything. Oh. Sometimes they follow through, but most of the time they don't because it's just the telling you part that relieves their anxiety, makes them feel in control, and then they disappear again. Um, so you, you have sort of like the, the neglectful boss and micromanager are two sides of the same coin. And then the last type is the gaslighter. So this is the one person who I think kind of fits more into the clinical domain of psychology. They're dishonest, but it's really very formulaic. They, they lie with the intent of deceiving on a huge scale, right? So they're trying to create an alternative reality for you to buy into. Often this is because they're actually pretty isolated at work. They don't have a lot of status with their own peers or even with their own leaders. And so in order to get people to stay with them, they create this alternative reality that those people would not be able to work here if it wasn't for them. They're the ones keeping them here. They're the ones, you know, really lifting them up. Um, either that or they're trying to cover up some kind of massive lie or dishonesty, um, you know, cheating or something like that. Oh. Yeah. But it's the, the trick there is that they socially isolate you. So that's how you know you have a gaslighter is they, they cut you off from other people who could then serve to kind of fact check their behavior. Oh. So those are the seven types of jerks. That wow. Thank you so much for that enlightening information. So that's quite an array of jerks. That is for sure. Now, maybe this is an unfair question, Tess. I'm going to ask it anyhow. What drives their bad behavior? Are there some different things that drive some of these different jerks or kind of is it all one thing that drives all this behavior? That's a great question. And as a social psychologist, I tend to kind of throw together the combination of whatever predispositions we have, right? So I think all of us could potentially be a jerk at work if you just bring those you know, negative traits out of us. So we all have either this tendency to be really competitive, you know, really controlling, maybe even, you know, shut down and be really hands-off if we're really stressed. So you take sort of whatever those worst case scenario versions of our own traits are, you put them in situations that allow them to thrive. And there you have a jerk at work. So I think it's really critical that we don't just kind of blame jerks at work on bad apples, bad people, toxic individuals. That's not really the case most of the time. I mean, with, of course, important exceptions, most of the time you have a workplace that either encourages this stuff inadvertently, you look at the people who are in the C-suite and they all got there by kissing up and kicking down, or they just turn the other cheek and think, I don't need to hear about this. Just get your work done. All I care about is the financial bottom line. I don't need to hear all this petty little nonsense about credit stealing and free riding and you know, bulldozing, whatever, just tell me, you know, like the, the financial kind of endpoint. And so these kinds of workplaces are breeding grounds for jerks at work. So if you want to detect one, half the battle is actually looking at the workplace and thinking, what about this place makes it fertile breeding ground for jerks at work? What types of jerks are most likely to thrive in this particular environment? Did I hear you correctly that actually some organizations, the reward systems or the systems itself or themselves are causing this behavior, encouraging this behavior? Are people yeah. getting rewarded for bad behavior? 
Yeah. And I would say that what is bad is very much in the eye of the beholder. So if you think, for example, about a law firm where only one or two people are going to make partner, that's an inherently zero sum environment that is going to encourage kiss out, kick down behavior because it's forcing everyone to see everybody else's competition. And so to the extent that they don't kind of subvert that with different practices that are more collaborative or punish kissing up and kicking down or even detecting it. So if bosses hand over communication to certain employees, they're no longer talking to everyone on their team. There's a kiss up, kick down or who's doing that job. That person will go undetected or bosses who are like very closed off and have this sort of vibe of don't come and complain to me unless it's a real problem. Those managers never hear about these low level complaints because they're not so-called HR worthy. They don't rise to the level of anyone sort of officially complaining you know, filing a form or anything like that. It's the low level stuff um, that, that tends to actually, you know, get worse over time because it accumulates. It's, it's sort of like not eating well and 40 years later you have a heart attack. It's a little bit like that. But yeah, I do think there's a lot of workplaces that inadvertently uh, encourage this kind of stuff. Wow, oh, that's amazing, certainly. Now you've done a great job, Tessa, sharing how behaviors of these seven jerks kind of show up, if you will. Did you want to peel the onion maybe on one or two of these jerks and talk a little bit more about how these behaviors may show up? Sure. I think, you know, um, I probably had the most recent experience with a bulldozer. So that's kind of an interesting one, because when we think of a bulldozer, we think of someone who just talks over people. Um, but if you have one of these people on your team, what you'll find is that every time you're tasked with making important decisions. So at NYU, we're always trying to hire. We've had a lot of retirements lately, trying to build our department back up. You know how typical sure. this, this thing is. And every hire is really high stakes because people kind of stay there for life. These, these decisions are really big decisions. You know, we've had people on our teams who are just shutting down hires and we're not actually seeing how it's happening in the moment because it's very much behind the scenes. So for instance, someone will go to the chair or to the dean and complain about the process that the group engaged in. Um, you know, I was in one meeting where someone complained that people felt they didn't have a chance to speak up or it wasn't really clear that we were actually voting on a, a candidate. And I knew this was going to happen. I could kind of foresee it happening. And they, this person took advantage of a leader who was very conflict averse. So kind of one thing that's interesting about bulldozers is they really thrive in environments where the boss who's in charge of them and the rest of the team is hands off because they don't want to have to pick a side. It's either the bulldozer or everybody else. Um, and, and so with that conflict aversion or that tendency just to hand the decision back to the team, it's very easy to kind of just walk all over someone. Um, you, you become what's called a toxic protege. Um, the person under you is toxic to everyone around them. And so the only way we could really beat this person is we saw the behavior coming. We kept impeccable records during the meeting. We recorded it. We used Qualtrics for votes where it was very clearly written out exactly who said what and what, and what the vote was on just to really fact check this person after the fact. But you really have to have a, some pretty amazing foresight to kind of see this coming. Most, of the, most groups trust each other enough where they don't actually take notes. Sure. They don't write it down. It's like very free form, especially in academia, where we never write anything down until it's a very late process. <laughs> so that one I felt a little blindsided by the first time it happened to me. But, you know, the, the good news is if you build certain processes in place, 
and you also get a coalition of other people who are in the room, it doesn't just become you versus the bulldozer. It becomes four of you versus the bulldozer. And then the manager or the leader is kind of forced to pick sides. They tend to go with the majority because they are conflict divorce. They don't want to fight with four people. They would rather fight with one. Um, but it was a really interesting, you know, sort of Game of Thronesy thing that I, I saw playing out in what it could otherwise be a very mundane faculty meeting experience. Wow, that is just amazing. So these are great strategies that you just shared with this kind of jerk. You have a couple of other strategies for a few of the other jerks. You may want sure. to with us today, please. I, I think the one that most people feel the most ill-equipped to handle is the kiss-up kickdowner. So this is actually someone, if you're new to the workplace, you're just graduating from college or university, you walk in the workplace and all of a sudden you're like, how is this happening? And how does no one care? You know, the first time I encountered one of these folks, they were very good at reading the room. So they could, they could walk into a room full of managers or leaders. So this is what I was selling shoes in Nordstrom. So they could tell who the buyer was, who the store manager was, you know, they could go to these like big events and figure out who had power and really work the room. You know, they would find similarities with people in power. I would see them laughing in the corner with someone. Oh, and I wow. knew I was in trouble. <laughs> you know, I, there's no, no one would listen to me. This person had all these connections and, you know, he was a great shoe salesperson. He upsold everybody, but he would do really conniving things like hide certain sizes. All of it had oh. plausible deniability they're good at covering their tracks. And I think when you're new to the workplace, like I was, I was, you know, maybe 18 or 19 the first time I met one of these, I did not know what to do because they take advantage of new people or people that don't have that, you know, hidden curriculum. They don't know how to get ahead. And my misstep was going to my boss to complain and saying that this person made me feel bad. And what I learned from that experience that I, I try to teach people is that it's important to be in touch with how you feel about these folks. It is not that useful to communicate how you feel about these folks to leaders. Instead, uh -huh. communicate what they did. Focus on very specific behaviors that you've documented. Feelings are open to interpretation. Managers are not trained therapists. They don't really know what to do with feelings, but they do know what to do with behaviors. And the more concrete you are about exactly what they did, you know, this person undermined me in front of the team. We had a meeting at 8 a.m. on Monday. You know, they said I didn't know how to... Uh, fit a wide foot into a skinny shoe oh, or whatever it is, the, be the better off you are. And the other thing is we have to be better about learning how to form allyships at work. And I'm not talking your best friends or the people that you're the closest to. You have to go outside your comfort zone and find well-connected people in the organization who you otherwise might not actually go to. And they're not there for you to complain to about your jerk at work. They're there to help connect you to other potential victims, to help connect you to your boss's coworker who knows what it takes to get your boss to care. You know, all of these things can really enrich in your perspective taking abilities so that when you do complain, you feel much better equipped to actually make a good argument and present it in a way that your boss is going to care about because you've done your homework. You know what makes your boss nervous, what your boss does and doesn't care about because you've talked to their colleague from 10 years ago, you know, those kinds of things. So those are the skills I feel like most of us ignore. We like to hang out with the same three people every day. We don't like to do all that sort of networky yep. stuff. It feels inauthentic, but it's really useful. And I think, and it benefits you above and beyond just this one jerk at work. It will actually prevent it from happening to you in the future. Ah, oh, what great advice, certainly. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you that when I was in Big Pharma, which I was for 30 years before becoming a Franciscan brother, that uh, the company offered a class dealing with difficult people. And some people took that class to learn how to deal with me. 
(laughs) I, I was a jerk at work for many years, sadly. I didn't know it though. How does one know? How can I tell yeah. if I'm the jerk at work? So this is a great story because you illustrate a key point around this kind of self-awareness. Nobody will tell you. It is extremely rare for people to give feedback directly to someone. And when they do, it's usually in the context of a fight or an argument or a like exit interview from hell. <laughs> so, oh, you wow. know, I, I, it's very common to not get that feedback for lots of good reasons. People are afraid. It's, it's not... Um, at least in the US, it's not something that's socially normative to give that kind of negative feedback. And quite frankly, we don't know how to do it. And so the best way to actually learn this type of thing is by asking for feedback in a very structured and systematic way. You don't want to ask people what they think of you. You you want to avoid broad generalizations as much as possible. And kind of like the advice I gave with the kiss up, kick downer, you want to ask specific questions about your behavior. So for instance, if you think you might be a micromanager, you feel that you're micromanaging someone, ask specific questions about turnaround time, level of detail. Did it give you too much feedback, not enough feedback? Are we focusing on your goals? Do you feel like there's a path forward for you? You know, or if you're a bulldozer, did you feel like you had a chance to speak up in that meeting? Do you think others had a chance to speak up in that meeting? Really specific questions, you have to do it immediately after the event and you have to do it regularly. So I'm all about kind of bite-sized routine feedback giving and getting is the best way to actually detect jerks and also find out if you are one and you can do them at the same time. So anytime you want to give someone feedback, ask for it in return. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like 360 feedback, quarterly performance reviews. Okay. Are that useful? They're big, they're vague. 360 tends to be anchored on the most recent event that people saw when they're filling it out. So it's called 360, but it, and it's quarterly, but it's really in the last 24 hours of what have you done that I can remember that I can jot down, right? Sure. And our memory sucks. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think it, and the other thing is the minute you make feedback formal, the minute it becomes a Qualtrics form that you have to hit send on or HR soliciting it, it's no longer honest. People lie because sure. they, there's too much of a social cost. It needs to be informal, needs to be face-to-face. It can't feel high stakes. It can't feel like you're going to get fired if you say the wrong thing. Um, And, you know, I'm all about just sort of practicing that pretty regularly so that it it defangs the whole thing. Otherwise, you're never going to find out. Or maybe you will accidentally, but most of us can go years without finding out. Yeah, that's what happened to me, Sally. Time, unfortunately, Tessa, believe it or not, is getting a bit short. I still have a couple of important questions to ask you. Is there a time where you had a deal with a jerk at work. And do you want to share a little bit about that, please? Oh, sure. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of jerks. I think um, kind of the most interesting jerks that I've dealt with are the ones that had like zero self-awareness uh, over the fact that they were jerks. So I dealt with one person who um, he didn't have the veneer of a jerk. He was very well liked. Everyone on the team thought he was fun. At conferences, he would, you know, be the one to stand up and introduce everybody but he was a free writer. So what he would do in meetings is he would talk about work, but then behind the scenes, he would delegate the actual hard stuff to, you know, the newest people in the organization that were like there for five minutes. Right. And the only reason why we were able to detect this went on for years. Right. And then they would do the work. They would report back to him. They thought it was their job to do his work and report back to him. He would then publicly talk about the work. So the minute you're sort of discussing the work out loud, it sticks to you. Right. And this is important for credit stealing as well. And it, the only reason we found out about this was because we went from a team of 10 to about a team of four. 
and he could no longer free ride because now he's divvying up his work between four people before it was 10, then we really felt the burn. Um, and so the lesson there is not all jerks at work come across as, you know, mean people are rude or they cut you off. He was wonderful. He was fun. He knew all the best gossip. He could get us into the New York restaurants. Nobody else could. Oh my connected. And we had a hard time letting him go because of all this stuff. But he just refused to actually do stuff. He just wanted to talk about stuff. And I think, you know, for us, the reason why he got away with it was partly our fault. We, we sort of implicitly knew it and let it happen. And I think there, it's all about at the beginning of projects, asking people what work they agreed to do, what work they did they didn't agree to do. And then you can really figure out whether this kind of free riding is going on. But I like that story because we missed him and we really liked him, but he really didn't do anything. He was very lazy. Oh, that is really, really something. I'm a big fan of the adage that people don't leave organizations. They really leave bosses. Yeah. And I would imagine that sometimes, as we've alluded this morning, the boss can be a jerk. How do you know when it's time to throw in the towel with a jerk boss? This is such a good question. And I want to write my next book on this. (laughs) Uh, How do you leave? When do you leave? I think, okay, so there's a couple of things. One, if you've tried these techniques of approaching them, you know, having healthy conflict, and they're not motivated to change, it's the same as a marriage. If you go to a marital therapist and they find out you are no motivation to change, you are not in a growth mindset at all, that's a huge red flag. The other red flag is if your boss is so conflict averse that they will, they they know not only have bad habits themselves, but they really hate detecting jerks on their teams. That's another red flag. So bosses can be jerks. They can be micromanagers, neglectful bosses. They can be mean and rude, but most of them are actually, their Achilles heel is that they're terrible at handling jerks. They are not good at detecting and treating early the jerks on their team. So I think, you know, you combine this lack of motivation with this sort of like hands-off approach to dealing with conflict and difficulty, you're in a rough spot. It's really hard to kind of get past those things. Um, But, you know, I would say, give your boss the benefit of the doubt at first. Most of the bad behaviors they're doing are harmful to them too. So they could actually use a little bit of uh, improvement, but you it's all about the presentation. It's all about the approach. Wow. That's great advice. Thanks so much. We've really saved the most important question, Tessa, for last. Where can people learn more about how to deal with jerks at work? Where can they purchase this incredible book, Jerks at Work, that you've written? How can they best follow? So you can go to my website, which is tessawestauthor.com. There's links to this book in any country that you want. Uh, there's also links to the quizzes in my book. You can get immediate feedback, find out what kind of jerk you are whether you're an effective ally, as well as all my op-eds and media interviews and all that fun stuff. So that's kind of my one-stop shop. You can follow me on Twitter, Tessa West NYU. I'm on LinkedIn, Insta, all those places. Um, All that information is at tessawestauthor.com. I want to give that website again. That's Tessa, T-E-S-S-A, West, W-E-S-T, author.com. Listeners, no excuse at all. Go to this website, pick up one of these great books, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. They will help you 
not only pick one up for yourself, pick one up for a friend, for a coworker, or maybe even someone. Do you recommend Tessa buying this for someone? Maybe he's a bit of a jerk at work. <laughs> it's the I new glitter bomb of the workplace. Stick it in your <laughs> boss's office with a couple of post-it notes. Read this passage here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely wonderful, but certainly continuing forward in 2022, we want to make the workplace a better place. We need now more than ever collaboration, not confrontation. So if we're working with jerks or if we're the jerk, we need to change behavior, whether it's ours or others. This book, The Great Things on Tessa's website, will have a long way in really helping to improve the workplace. Tessa West, author of this great book, Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. We can't thank you enough for gracing us today on Thank God for Monday. We've been enlightened. We've been inspired, certainly. We're on the air now 15 years. We've never done a show about this topic. And I must say, uh, this is the first book I've ever seen on this. So you've really, really broken some wonderful ground here. So thank thanks you. for all your incredible work. And certainly all the best in your continued teaching at NYU and all this other great things that you're doing. Thank you. Listeners, after you buy this great book and follow Tessa, don't forget about our social media. We're now on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, now even TikTok and uh, the other places as well. Instagram, follow us, give us suggestions for guests, questions, comments, concerns. Uh, indeed, we love to hear from you. Listeners, sadly, once again, we're out of time. Greg saying our hope and prayer is that. When you wake up on Monday morning, just like Tessa West does, you'll say, thank God for Monday. We will see you next week for another issue, an episode of Thank God for Monday. In the meantime, have a very, very blessed week, and we'll see you next week on Thank God for Monday. Have a great one, everyone.